Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 21 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. So before diving into the new book for today, let's just start with a level set. So as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through fitness, photography, traveling, and many other things, um, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. So before diving into the book, let's go ahead and start with uh, today's story. So, um, you know, I don't know if this story is funny or not, but um, just an interesting experience. Okay. So when I was back in undergrad, um, you know, I spent a lot of time interning at firms downtown, which was easy for me because I went to school downtown. Um, so I would, I would always have a job in college. Um, and so at this one particular financial firm, um, I interned at for quite some time. Um, we had a Christmas party, right? Every year in December at some time, we would have a Christmas party. Now, um, I was not really a big um, person who would who would drink before I was 21. Not that I was holier than thou or anything like that. I just never, you know, really took, right? Um, I didn't really start drinking until after I was 21. So um, essentially, uh, at this Christmas party, you know, I'll I'll tell you how big of a noob I was, right? I ordered a Shirley Temple, which I still think is a really good drink. Um, so I ordered a Shirley Temple. Um, and also our Christmas party was at Trump Tower, downtown Chicago, right? So, you know, all issues with um, Trump aside, the Trump Tower in Chicago is a dope-ass spot. You know, it's one of the nicest places um, in downtown Chicago. Really bougie, nice ballrooms, nice hotel, right? So um, it's really upscale to be doing a Christmas party there, right? So we're there. We're having a good time. I'm with my team. You know, I'm an intern, so, you know, I'm, I'm not even – I'm 21 um, at this point, and um, everyone else is, you know, at least 30, right? So I'm the youngest one there, um, and I was still really cautious about drinking in front of my coworkers. Uh, so, you know, my, my, my 21st birthday was a couple months back, and um, we hadn't celebrated. So we were actually going to celebrate that night um, because it was night. it was a night that all my boys were free. Um, and we were just going to go um, out when I got back from this Christmas party, which wasn't going to be too late, right? It started at like 6.30. I, I, was, um, I was heading out around 9, right? So um, I'm heading out, right? Um, it's 9, 9.30. And, and everyone else is starting to head out too, right? Um, wrapping up for the evening because a lot of people come from the burbs and things like that. So they got to catch the, the, the CTA or the Metra back home. So... During my time with this firm, I, I had a controller, right? So the controller um, at, at this particular firm reported up to the vice president, right? So he was pretty high up there, and he was he was a real like stoic um, little guy, um, kind of sarcastic, you know, um, almost he was kind of a dick, you know, to be honest. Um, and he had a wife and two kids, right? He had the full family, the nuclear family unit. So um, we're leaving, and this guy never never talks to me, right, at work. Uh, 
even though he's my my coworker's boss. So he never talks to me, but I'm leaving, and I think you know we were we were kind of hitting off at the party, and he goes, uh, "Where are you going now?" And I go, "Hey man, you know I'm going out for the night. I'm gonna you know hop on the red line, go back to Wrigley where I was living, um, and me and the guys are gonna go out." And um, he goes, "Can I come with?" And I go, "Yeah, sure. Why not, man? You know, like I'm I'm all about like you know hanging out with people um, and things like that and getting to know them outside of work. So you know why not come along, man?" So mind you, this guy's probably 40 years old, so, um, all good, so we get on the red line, we go back to, um, Wrigley, we go to my apartment, and we pregame a little bit, right, so, um, we're, we're hanging out, um, you know, my guys are pretty cool about it, so we're hanging out, he's fine, we're good, um, so then we go to the bars, right, we live in Wrigleyville, my, my buddies live in Wrigleyville, so we all just congregate at my place, go out for the night, so we go out for the night, we're celebrating, have a great time, right? And um, it's about, right, two, the bars in Wrigley close between 1 and 3 a.m., right? So it's about 2 a.m., and we're we're ready to go, right? We're not necessarily going to go to sleep at this point, but we're just probably going to go back, um, you know, play some video games or something, chill, and wind the night down, right? And we all live ne- literally right next door to each other, so we can all just kind of hang out at my place, and then they can either pass out for a little bit, wake up, go to their place, since it's right next door. So we're leaving, and I'm assuming at this point my my controller is going to want to go back to his home, right, in the suburbs with his family and figure that out, right? It's like 2 a.m. So we're leaving, and then he goes, what are you guys doing now? And I go, nothing, man. We're just going to go back, you know, like just chill for a little bit, maybe knock out after, you know, a little bit. So he's like, can I come? I go, all right, yeah, definitely, man. Come on down, you know. So he comes over um, again. You know, there's still a lot of people there. You know, all the guys are there. Um, so then, um, we're chilling for another hour, playing video games, playing FIFA and stuff like that. And after an hour and a half, he leaves, right? My boss just goes, goes ahead and, you know, moseys on out of there and it's three 30 in the morning. And I'm like, where are you going now? Like, um, you know, I don't know the logistics of what you're about to do, but I assume like if you're taking the, the, the train back home, you're probably going to get home around 5 a.m. Um, and I'm sure your family is going to be wondering um, kind of what you're doing, you know, whatever. Or, I mean, whatever. It's all good. You can be out. The point of this was, you know, I kind of like had a lot of experiences like that in the financial world where I would have like a uh, uh, an older guy or like an, a person who's tenured in the firm, like really want to hang out with us or want to hang out with a younger crowd and just be drinking late into the night, right? And that was kind of my... Um, uh, a, a few red flags, right? Um, and I, I went ahead and just said, you know what, dude? Like, that's interesting and all, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta mosey on out because this is not really my vibe, right? Like, there's a, there's a lot of people you'll see in, in that corporate finance world that are like borderline alcoholics. You know, they, um, they live for the happy hours and things like that. Um, and to me, it was just kind of sad to see that. But he was a cool guy, you know. I'm, I'm sure he's well and things like that. And no judgment passed. Just not necessarily the lifestyle or the vibe I'm trying to put off, right? Um, so yeah, just an interesting story there, right? Um, I think a uh, couple points that come out of that is like, you know, when you're open to to new experiences, right? You're gonna have some funny stories to share, um, but you'll also um, learn a lot about people and the different kinds of people that are out there. So anyway. Um, coming back to the book today we got a new one for today and so um we hopped off of mindful relationship habits which is a book i really enjoyed um and today we're going to be going through um a a series that i've been reading and this particular book is called the crime book 
um, by Big Ideas Simply Explained. Now, I don't know who the exact author of it is. I'm sure it's a conglomerate of people, but the, the overarching umbrella is called Big Ideas Simply Explained, um, and this one is called The Crime Book. So there's different partitions throughout the book, right? And it kind of shows the history of crime and how it evolved. So we'll go through it in like probably those three parts. Um, so um, there's something very interesting about this book, okay? So there's, there's different types of criminals. And like I said, they evolved through the ages, okay? So the, the different categories are um, bandits, robbers, arsonists, um, con artists, white collar crimes, organized crimes, kidnapping and extortion, murder cases, and then serial killers and assassinations related to political plots. So a few different categories. And I'm just going to go through a couple stories, um, but we'll go through each category um, podcast by podcast, right? So today um, we're going to go through bandits, robbers, and arsonists. And, you know, you know, not trying to go too deep into the level set, but um, you'll see how crime evolves, right? As societies become more civilized and the population increases, the police force has had to catch up, right? Or um, criminal investigation has had to clean, uh, catch up to that. Um, and I've got a really, uh, a brand new perspective on crime, right? And you think that crime is just like one-off um, and it has to do with quote-unquote bad people um, and it doesn't really affect you, right, personally. But Crime is a reaction to economics and economic circumstances, right? Like, for example, when there's a lot of oppression or poverty, people are going to act out. They're going to find different ways to make their ends meet or get out of their social standing. So, you know, I'm not going to uh, harp on that any longer. Let's just go ahead and jump into the first story I have for today. So, you know, the material is going to be a little bit different, a little bit more dense. Um, so feel free to leave me any comments on how I can make this a little bit more interesting. But anyway, so the, the, the first crime um, we're going to go into is related to Edward Blackbeard Teach. And it was from, uh, it takes place between 1716 and 1718. Um, and it's all about like piracy, right? And racketeering and things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, the location of it, we're going to be talking about areas mainly in the Caribbean and the East Coast of North America. So... Um, a little background on Edward Teach. So he was what they called a privateer during Queen Anne's War. I'll, I'll talk about what that is, right? Um, so during Queen Anne's, Queen Anne's War, Edward Teach, Blackbeard, was a privateer. So um, after a short while, privateering became illegal, right? So um, we see this a lot with you know veterans and people who come back from war, um, is that they often turn to a life of criminality, right, or a life of crime. Um, so Blackbeard turned to piracy after the war, not being able to mesh um, into normal society, okay? So that's a theme we'll see throughout. Um, and then around 1716, Blackbeard went ahead and traveled to Nassau. Um, and so I've personally been to Nassau. Um, I've been on a cruise that, you know, docked in Nassau. And it's a, it's a great little island, right? It's a, you can tell it's a port city, has all the um, uh, kind of like, I don't know if it's French architecture um, from when they settled there. Um, it's a very tropical place. Um, you know, I remember me and my buddies had a few drinks at like a, a tequila spot um, in Nassau. and kind of walked around the island. It was really fun. Um, looks a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean. So, um, in 1716, Blackbeard uh, traveled to Nassau, um, and then he, there he met Captain Benjamin Hornigold. 
and together they really plundered the waters around Cuba, um, Bermuda, and the east coast of America. So those two guys, Blackbeard and Hornigold, met another guy named uh, Steed Bonnet, and they all joined forces there. Now, um, King George I uh, passed the Indemnity Act at this time, and what that did was pardon any pirate who went ahead and renounced his lifestyle and would not engage in piracy any further. So Hornigold, right, one of those three guys, actually took advantage of that, and he parted ways with Blackbeard at that time. Okay, So he's out of the picture. So at the same time, some of Steed Bonnet's men actually left him um, and became loyal to Blackbeard. And then Blackbeard didn't kill Bonnet, but kept him on as like a quote-unquote guest on his ship. So after that point, Blackbeard goes ahead, sets out to North Carolina, and he takes over the port of Charleston. So, you know, what that entailed was he, he captured like nine or ten ships, um, and he ransom, he, he held ransom um, a wealthy politician um, and a merchant. So um, as Blackbeard and his fleet um, left North Carolina, um, their, their boats ran aground, right? And, and Blackbeard was actually captured. But he was granted a pardon by the governor of North Carolina, and so was Bonnet, even though he was kind of a guest on the ship. So Bonnet went ahead and stayed in North Carolina, but Blackbeard escaped and went back into his life of piracy, um, and you know stole his ships back, and they took off. Okay, so now Blackbeard had violated his terms and had a bounty on his head. So at this point, Lieutenant Robert Maynard um, uh, caught up to Blackbeard. Right, he was part of the Navy. And so his naval team, they actually found Blackbeard's fleet. And then Blackbeard ultimately outmaneuvered the naval fleet, right? Um, and the naval fleet was lured onto a sandbar, and they got stuck there, right? Um, so at this point, Blackbeard could have just ran away, right? I'm like, all right, these guys are stuck. I'm good. I'm in the clear. But he turned around, right? He turned around and um, fired his cannons at the boat. So Blackbeard then, right, he, uh, he goes ahead and tells his men to board the ship. So the men board the ship, um, and at that point, um, a bunch of naval officers, 30 to 40 naval officers, came from beneath the deck. And Maynard, the captain, actually shot Blackbeard in the abs. So um, at this point, um, Blackbeard was really outnumbered. He was outgunned. But he didn't stop fighting, right? He continued to fight. It was clear he was going to fight to the death at this point. So he was actually shot five times and had over 20 sword wounds in him. Um, so, you know, kind of a sad ending there. But um, Maynard uh, actually went a step further, even more sad, a little bit more uh, graphic. Um, they, they hung Blackbeard's head from the, the bow of their ship. And then later, it was mounted on a stake as a warning to to future pirates right um and that's pretty gross um and we see we see that in a lot of movies but it, it's based on facts actually um so those are the facts right that's the story um and let's pause just for a minute to talk about why why something like piracy would arise um so um going back to the 13th century king henry the third of england allowed something called privateering, like we talked about earlier. Um, he allowed privateering commissions. And what they were, um, were groups of sailors that were allowed to plunder and attack foreign vessels in the name of the king. Um, so 
British privateers would regularly attack French and Spanish ships. So once once um, things had settled down though between you know French the French the Spanish and the British, the privateers uh, found themselves kind of on the wrong side of the law because privateering became illegal. Now this this is interesting because a lot of men who had who had these uh, probably uh, how do I put it they had very uh, um, wealthy uh, upbringings or they had let's say they even had poor upbringings right they were able to receive significant sums by plundering by by pillaging by privateering quote unquote right so now all of their hard-earned money is now illegal because you know the king said so right and this brings up conversations of law right and we talk about law um, uh, supposedly being developed in in ethics right rooted in ethics but that's not always the case right we here in this specific example we see it being allowed to plunder right and pillage but after a short time it was really made illegal so you know the, the lesson i take away from that is that you know what really constitutes a criminal is not necessarily an ethics argument it's more based on social structures that shift constantly um, and it's derived from economic and political situations um, as opposed to right and wrong, right? So um, won't dive, dive too deep into that, uh, but it's, it's an interesting conversation. So that was Blackbeard. Um, and so we'll wrap that one up and we'll move on to um, the next story. So the next story we'll talk about is, is Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and they came to prominence um, in, in the 1930s, which was uh, the Great Depression era. So we're talking about outlaws here, right? They primarily operated in the Midwest, uh, United States, and and the story starts like this. Um, and the book the book starts off with this story. So in 1933, two police cars pull up to an apartment in Missouri. The police officers yell for Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, part of the Barrow gang, to come out. Okay, so Clyde grabs his M1918 automatic rifle and he fires it through the window while Bonnie is laying down cover fire for him. They kill two officers and they escape. Now the police go into the, the apartment. They find a bunch of weapons. They find handwritten poems from Bonnie um, and some undeveloped film. So this film really romanticized the couple, um, but it also gave the police force a lot of information on the couple um, and ultimately led to their downfall. And that's a theme throughout Bonnie and Clyde's like um, little escapade. Uh, they were glamorized in the media, right? But they they would often escape just barely, um, and they experienced a lot of injuries, um, and their robberies were very very sloppy. So let's talk about the time period, right? So 1931 through 1935, give or take a year here and there was the period known as that public enemies period, right? And um, with like John Dillinger, um, Babyface Nelson, robbing banks, right, in the Midwest. Um, it was a time where there was high profile criminals that really arose from the Great Depression, okay? Um, these these criminals were really seen as like Robin Hood types, and they were, they were at first supported by the general population, okay? so. You know, I recently watched the the movie's Public Enemies again, right? And that's the the, the story where um, Johnny Depp plays John Dillinger, 
And so in the story, John Dillinger did not want to kill people. He was totally against killing innocent people. Um, and he didn't want to lose the support of the people. That's just not something he did was harm innocent people. Um, they were, he always says he's, uh, we're, t we're here for the bank's money, right? Insured by the federal government. We're not here for your money. Um, you would see John Dillinger and, and his squad in fancy restaurants, um, really not worrying about being conspicuous, right? Wearing nice clothes, things like that. Um, so, and another thing to note as background knowledge was that um, the FBI was still in its early development phase, right? Um, and they couldn't pursue criminals across state borders. Um, so that really played to Bonnie and Clyde's advantage. So history on the time period, right? So let's do a quick history on Bonnie and Clyde. So Bonnie and Clyde met in 1930, and they, they immediately hit it off. And then shortly after um, they met, Clyde was sent to prison for robbery, and um, he committed his first murder in prison, and where he beat an inmate to death with a lead pipe. Um, after that, Bonnie snuck in a gun, and Clyde escaped. So when Clyde got out of prison, um, it seems that he was like pissed about his jail time, and he wanted to take some sort of revenge on the on the prison system, and he started recruiting you know other bandits associates, and they would rob gas stations, um, and kidnap and kill if they had to. So, um, you know from from the story, it seems like they really had no sense of being you know conspicuous or or treading lightly. Okay, so um, when when Clyde's brother was once released from jail, and Clyde recruited his brother and his brother's wife for the gang. Um, when, when they were released from prison, uh, they, they had a 12-day bender with drugs and alcohol that attracted the cops, right? And that's the story I talked about in the beginning of uh, going through Bonnie and Clyde. Um, they were just in their apartment, drinking, doing drugs, playing loud music for 12 days, and um, ultimately they called the cops on them. So um, after that, right, they start moving all over the Midwest from like uh, Minnesota to Texas, Indiana, and they would commit all these crimes near state lines so that the FBI really couldn't pursue them. Um, and then after that, um, they started getting more violent, right? So as they got more violent, the public opinion changed of them. Uh, they used to apply like these type of heroic profiles to people. Um, and it was really a result of the economy, right? Uh, and by, by 1933, though, the gang started to experience some like inner turmoil, okay? So there's a point where Clyde flipped a car that he was driving with Bonnie in it, and Bonnie suffered some serious injuries to her leg, like had some third-degree burns, and she was unable to really walk after that. So Clyde's often seen carrying her in pictures because she couldn't really walk after that incident. Um, also, Clyde's brother was shot in the head twice, I think. Um, once he recovered, the second time he didn't. Um, and he, he died in the hospital, but not before agents questioned him. So after that, you know, they, they were really wreaking havoc on, on that Midwest and the country and setting a bad precedent. So um, Captain Frank A. Hammer was assigned to the case, and he was in that. He was mentioned in the movie Highwaymen, where Kevin Costner plays Hammer, I think. So he put together a team, um, and they had a huge manhunt for Bonnie and Clyde. So you know, sure enough, Hammer got a tip, um, and of where Bonnie and Clyde would be. So they set up an ambush on a road in Louisiana, and there a bunch of officers hid in bushes. So 
um, Bonnie and Clyde's car pulls up. They jump out of the bushes and fire 130 rounds into the car, and Bonnie and Clyde suffered multiple fatal shots. Okay, and after that, which is really controversial, they towed the car into town and to they towed it through town, and people were coming all around the car. They were trying to grab things um, off of Bonnie and Clyde. One guy tried to cut his finger off, his trigger finger off, Clyde's trigger finger, so they could uh, keep it and maybe sell it later. I don't know. Weird. Um, and there's super. There's a lot of controversy around that because they they towed a dead couple with a bunch of shots in the car through the town, but also they didn't really um, give an attempt for them to surrender, right? So you know, you know, it's a lesson learned, I guess. But in the end, um, the the public enemies era really was done after about 1934-1935 and a law was passed that made kidnap kidnapping and robbery a federal offense so FBI could pursue across state lines. Um, so you know wrapping up this story why, why did these celebrity criminals arise? Um, so one thing that you'll notice is that the public was angry right they were faced with unemployment and then poverty associated with that. Um, so they essentially saw that like this rebellious nature towards the established order was was somewhat heroic until it got violent right um going against that established order was very nice until it it kind of hit home for the citizens so like i said like i was talking about in the level set crime is really a reaction to economic policy and political policy um and i don't know too much about either of those things but you know, I'm getting I'm getting more knowledge on that um, as I'm reading. So very very interesting points there. So you know, we're halfway through. We're gonna go through two more stories, and um, the next one um, is called the Great Train Robbery, which occurred on August eighth, nineteen sixty three. So it 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 was uh, it took place in Buckinghamshire, United Kingdom. Um, so just a level set on, on the, the time, right? So life was very, very heavily poverty-stricken. Um, a lot of post-war situations were still going on from World War II, um, and were still present in the UK, right? Um, we know a lot of veterans come back, have a hard time meshing um, in you know everyday society, and also um, there was a lot of uh, there was that working-class order, right? And it was hard to jump social strata. Uh, when you were when you were in that industrial age England and we might we might be past it at this point but um, still some present themes there so um, like I said when life is poverty stricken some people are going to accept it and some people are going to find ways to make ends meet or or jump out of their 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 class so let's talk about um, a guy named Ronald Edwards so Ronald Edwards worked in a sausage factory and he would often start his life a crime through taking some of the meat home and selling it, you know, probably at a discount or selling it at a lower price, um, black market meat, right? And yo, like to me, this is a really weird side gig. Like someone probably knew him as like the sausage guy, right? Like that's my sausage hookup right there. Super weird, right? I, I definitely would not want to be known um, as the sausage guy, I guess. Um, but anyway, side note. So, um, after this, right, he, he's successful with being the sausage guy. So then he moves on to bigger crimes, as we normally see. Um, so he meets some he meets a guy named Gordon Goody. So um, he 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 starts to move on to higher scale crimes with Gordon Goody. Um, 
and through you know their their escapades and their expeditions um, and having to and and been jailed a couple times for crimes, they came into contact with a law, a law clerk named Brian Field. So Field would give the details of the firm's you know wealthier clients to Ronald Edwards and Gordon Goody, and that that would be their next target. And Brian Field will get a percentage of those takings. So through all this, they met another guy, an Ulsterman, right, from Belfast, the Ulster Volunteer Force, um, little Peaky Blinders there. Um, they met a guy named Patrick McKenna. So McKenna was a corrupt postal worker, and they let the group know that there were large sums of cash being carried on overnight mail trains from Glasgow to London, so from Scotland to England. So at that point, Goody and Edwards, they were not equipped to rob a train, right? So they took this information to a more experienced criminal in South London named Bruce Reynolds. Um, so Reynolds developed a plan. They were going to stop this train um, at Buckinghamshire Station, where a or, or a, a junction where they could interfere with the signal. They would stop the train, but they realized that they couldn't unload the money there. Um, so they 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 were going to move the train to a nearby bridge, so they could offload it, forming a human chain into their vans and cars and take off. So they found out that all the high value packages were in the second car from the front. Um, so Reynolds really didn't want to leave anything to chance, so he spent a lot of time studying locomotives um, and manuals related to them. Um, he recruited a train driver for the for the robbery, and he even acted like a school teacher um, and convinced a real train conductor to show him the basics. Um, so lastly, they purchased a farm near the robbery where they could hide out at, you know, after the robbery. So the day comes. Um, of the robbery, and the train was carrying about 2.6 million pounds, which is equivalent to $68 million today. So the robbers went ahead and boarded the train, and they knocked out the conductors and some of the related workers. So, you know, you know how I said that they, they hired a replacement driver for this job. That driver soon realized that they were dealing with a state-of-the-art locomotive, right? A, one, a new one of its kind, um, and they had been practicing on older, older engines. So, which is super bogus, right? They ended up having to revive the guy they knocked out. You know, it's like, oh, dude, I'm about to rob you, knock you out. Just kidding. I need, I need you to help me rob you. You know, that's super bogus, right? Um, anyway, so ultimately, the gang steals the money, right? The gang steals the money, and they head back to the farm so they can hide out. Um, so a side note is that there appeared to be up to 17 men involved at at one point. Um, uh, in this robbery. So you can imagine that at some point someone's going to slip up, okay? They had to be cautious not to spend too much money and raise any red flags. So they go to the farm, right? They're hiding out, and a neighbor reported some suspicious activity. So he, the cops show up, and, and no one's there. They leave. So they found fingerprints on a Monopoly game where they used the money from the robbery instead of fake money, and they found, it on, found fingerprints on a uh, ketchup bottle. Super annoying, right? Um, so within a few days, um, almost all of the members were jailed for 30 years. They were caught and jailed. And 30 years is really aggressive for a, um, uh, a robbery. So a few of them escaped, but many of them died prematurely from you know heart attacks and PTSD-related things. 
But, you know, like we saw with the previous two stories, they were romanticized, right? Because rebelling against your social class um, and rebelling against the government and, and poverty was uh, was seen as uh, heroic at the time. So um, it was seen as, like I said, vogue to show disobedience to the to the old school authority. Um, and many of these people who, who stayed alive were released um, after, you know, 10, 15 years um, on grounds of compassion. Um, and, you know, something about the time period is that, you know, it, it was a time where, you know, laws were still being formed. Technology wasn't really as sophisticated. Um, and there was a lot of poor people in the UK, right? So, like I said, people are going to find loopholes around the system in order to break away from their hard situations, right? So, like I said, um, if... if uh, the, the government, the country, is not helping the people. They're going to find a way to help themselves. Um, so we see those similar themes coming through. So that takes us through the, the Great Train Robbery in 1963 um, in Buckinghamshire. And then we're on to our last story for the day, which is the story of Fulan Devi. And this, this story takes place in India. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting story um, from about 1979 to 1983, even through um, the 2000s. So the location... Um, is Uttar Pradesh, India. Uh, so Fulan Devi, she grew up poor in a low caste. And for those of you that don't know, the caste system doesn't mean as much now, but it meant a lot. It was everything back in the day. Um, and this was in the 1980s, so not too long ago. So um, she was forced to marry a man three times her age, which is also not um, uncommon, right, um, in India. Many, many girls are married to guys at twice, three times their age. So um, she fled an abusive husband, and then she was disowned by her parents, which is crazy, right? Like, it kind, of, uh, kind of attests to the difference in like uh, what's, what's uh, socially acceptable, right? Um, when she, her fleeing an abusive husband was, uh, was, was frowned upon, uh, but, but for a different reason, right? Not because he was abusive, but because she left which to me is kind of backwards. But anyway, um, just, a, just a victim of the time, right? So at 16, she became a bandit for a local gang, right? Um, no husband, abandoned by her parents, joins a gang. And she starts raiding highway robberies and attacking upper caste villages and also kidnapping rich people for ransom. In one instance, uh, they went ahead and looted an entire town and they distributed all of the goods, all the takings to the poor. So, like I said, um, this Robin Hood theme carried through, right? So, so Fulan Devi was a low caste member, like I said, and then she became a teenage gang member. But the main part of the story takes place when she was kidnapped by a high caste gang in Bemai. She was kidnapped and locked up for three weeks and repeatedly raped by different people. So after three weeks, she escapes. She gets back with her gang, and they return to that village. Um, where she, where she had been captive. So in that village, they round up about 22 to 25 people, males, um, including a couple of her rapists, and they shot them all dead in the town square. And that was known as the Bimai Massacre. And at the time, it was India's largest mass execution. Um, and then obviously a manhunt for Fulan Devi followed. So like I said, she became somewhat of a Robin Hood figure, um, and her crimes were really glorified. Um, and, and received as a rebuttal to the oppression of women um, in, in, in rural India, right? Um, and something that still carries through today. So 
Fulan Devi ran for two years. She was she was a she was a bandit. She was a, a criminal, and the the police force was after her for two years. And she hid in villages um, of people that she would distribute her her profits to, right? And they hid her. Um, but after a couple of years, she negotiated a surrender of her and her associates in return for reduced sentences. Now, she spent 11 years just waiting for trial. And then in 1994, all of her charges were dropped, which is really bogus, right? You're just sitting in, in jail for 11 years. Um, and it just goes to show the, the, the judicial system um, in India is, is, is still catching up. But um, after she was released, she went into politics and she actually became an elected member of parliament. Um, but in 2001, she was assassinated. So um, that kind of ends her story right there. But um, we'll leave off today with uh, the question of crime and candidacy, right? So a lot of people believe that you know people who are convicted of crimes shouldn't be allowed to run for office because um, it contradicts the uh, the duties of a citizen, right, to not commit the crime uh, in the first place. But a lot of voters will perceive a crime that is more for the public good to be more favorable, right? Like we talk about, you know, I don't know if it's a, a perfect example, Pablo Escobar, right? He grew up poor, attained his glory through drugs and, you know, killing and stuff like that. And then he ran for office and thought he was the voice of the people, right? So we see these Robin Hood types, um, coming to light through crime, right? And um, it seems that, you know, the public takes it well until um, innocent people start getting killed or people not associated with the conflict get killed. Um, so an interesting little dialogue here. Um, so like I said, a very different flavor of book today, um, but I'm enjoying the history of it. Definitely giving me a new view on crime and some of the reasons behind it. But, you know, I hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts. Um, I hope you find them informative. Uh, feel free to leave me any feedback. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.